in your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. We'll be at the end of actually chapter 20 and then Matthew 21 for the major section of our text. Matthew chapter 20 can be found on page 825 of the Black Bibles around you. If you're not used to using a Bible, the chapter numbers are the large bold print numbers, and then there's small verse numbers, so we can make our way around and hopefully find things more easily. These chapters and verses are not original to this book when Matthew wrote it. It's just a nice long scroll probably, a piece of papyra, something like that, and he writes it all down, and then it gets copied, and then here we have it today in our English Bibles. I'm going to read for you um, right from the gate the section. It's a longer section, so I want to just tell you what I'm about to read to you. So you, in case you like, you know, you guys ever drift off? No, never? Okay, well, sometimes, you know, I might drift off when I'm reading. And um, I just want to be sensitive that if maybe, you know, you lose focus, uh, I'm going to read you uh, four stories in a row. The first story is about two guys that are blind And they cry out to Jesus, and Jesus heals them, and then they follow Jesus. That's story number one. Then we'll turn the page to chapter 21. Story number two is going to be about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then people start shouting, Hosanna. And if you've ever been in church before, some of you be like, I think I've sung that before. Hosanna, Hosanna, like something like that. And you're like, but wait, what does that even mean? Anyway, that's the next story. Story number two is people shouting out Hosanna. Story number three is if the story didn't stop at the paragraph breaks and it just kept going, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and then he enters the temple. And in the temple, he turns over a table of money changers and he says that this house should be a house of prayer. And then he heals some people. And then people get angry with Jesus because people are shouting to Jesus, Hosanna, again. And then there's story number four. In the next morning, Jesus is returning back to the city and he sees a tree and it doesn't have any fruit on it, so he curses it. That's the end of story number four. That's what we're about to read. And I just think that it would be good for you to follow along closely so that you realize that as a church... It's our main ambition to get to know Jesus. So several of you are members of this church. Welcome back. Here we are. We want to get to know Jesus. The reason we're spending a slow series of messages in the Gospel of Matthew is because we want to know him. And we don't want to be in a hurry to get to know him. If you're a guest or visitor, welcome. We're glad you're here today. More than anything, we think it would be best for you to get to know Jesus, and we want you to know about Jesus. If you don't even believe in him, we think it'll be helpful for you to just at least know who he was. Most influential man that's ever walked on the earth, some might argue, and they're not even Christians. So you should probably get to know who this Jesus guy is. And today we're going to get a picture of the complexity and the depth of Jesus. 
And if me just overviewing these stories doesn't start to pique your interest of like, now why did he do that? What, what is going on? Why is he riding on a donkey? Why are people shouting Hosanna? Why is he turning over tables? Is he angry? Did he just light a fuse? You know, does he got a short temper? I thought Jesus was like a good guy. He doesn't seem like it. He got angry at a tree. Like, what is up with this guy? So let's read it. And they went out of Jericho. A great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And when Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the chief priests and the scribes were indignant. And they said to him, Did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, 
as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. There we have it, friends. There's our four stories about Jesus. Jesus is not as simple as he sometimes is portrayed, and these stories can be really, really dense if you want to spend the time studying them like I just did this week and in other times of my life. These stories are really, really dense. If you guys give me enough feedback, we might need to do these stories again. Like, they're that dense. But we need to get them all together in one link because I need you to see the way that they're connected to each other because if we just take them one at a time, I'm afraid some of you are going to come and then you're not going to come next week and whatever. And I want you to just hear the whole thing. One big picture, one big idea. All right? So before I give you that big idea, I want to help you understand what's going on in these stories, and I struggled a lot with trying to figure this out. My first idea was just to illustrate it this way, and it was to say, to best understand what is happening in Jesus, you need to remember it's Passover, you need to remember this is a high holiday, that when it says there's crowds, there's crowds because it's a big holiday, and so I just started to think, what's a good representation in our modern day for what's happening here in Jesus' story? And the best I could think of was Washington, D.C., 4th of July. Big holiday, right? Uh, it's in the capital. It's in the center of where the nation's like power and the president is. This is where all of, you know, the stuff goes on for the United States of America. There, there's so much symbolism in, in the capital, right? And, and so I think that's helpful image. Imagine... The 4th of July, imagine tons and tons of people coming to the city, which happens every 4th of July. There's big parties and festivals and, and parades and things like that, and it's packed. I've been. I, I grew up in D.C. And then there's fireworks shows and, and all music and, and, and the band, the Marines are singing and whatever else, and marching, etc. Okay? You get the idea? Picture that kind of scene. And then I want you to imagine somebody makes a scene and then declares that they're the president of the United States. How do you think that would go? What do you think Twitter would look like? Like, what do you think our president would say about that? I, I just have a feeling he'd say something. This is no commentary on, like, whether you're for or against our current president. I'm just trying to help you understand, what would that be like? So that was my first thought to help you understand what's going on in this story. And then I was listening to the same message on this text given by the guy that made the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, 
And uh, he came up with an illustration that was, that was really good. I was like, that might be better than the DC one. And uh, it's about an artist named, uh, his art name is uh, Binksy, and he's from London. And I've never heard of him before, but I was listening to this message. Um, we're going to hit the lights, and I'm going to show you some of his artwork, because I think this will really help. So this is one of his well-known photographs, and this is um, graffiti on uh, a wall right outside of where the wall is between Palestine and Israel. So I want you, if you know anything about politics and what's going on in the world, and you know that like, there's a wall and a divide, and there is uh, a tension between Israel and Palestine, and so you've got this guy who's got his face covered, and he's got his hat backwards, and he's getting ready to throw something, and typically you'd imagine he's going to throw what? Some sort of grenade or rock or something that's going to be destructive, but what's in his hand? Flowers. It's sarcastic, it's provocative, it's prophetic. Do you see what kind of artwork this guy does? So this guy gets really popular, and people love it, and some people hate it. Um, just depends on which side of whatever political message he's pushing with his artwork. And so he gets so popular that some of these art museums decide they'd like to showcase some of his art. So this is what he does. Next slide. This is hilarious. Okay, it's dark, and I'm sorry, but uh, this picture here is a picture of him dressed up in like inspector gadget mode, and he sneaks in and puts up his own picture on his own. Like he gets asked, hey, can, can we put some of your stuff up? And he goes, yep, I'll, I'll take care of that. And so he puts up one of his own uh, pieces of artwork, and it says, you've got to be kidding me. That's what the guy is saying in the little caption. And then there's a 10,000-pound price tag for this little picture of this cartoon. You've got to be kidding me. Do you see what he's doing? Do you get it? He's provocative. He, he, he didn't get permission to do this. Like, he snuck in and did this. One of his more well-known pieces is the next one, and it's not a piece of artwork. It's a demonstration he did uh, during the Guantanamo Bay crisis and protests, if you guys know about those. Again, this is all like political stuff that he does. So this is Disneyland. This is in Anaheim, California, and um, there's a train. Uh, it's a ride, uh, whatever that ride is, like Thunder Mountain maybe, something like that, right? So there's Thunder Mountain, and then you can't see it real well, but right here is uh, his artwork. And so we'll go to the next picture, and there's a zoom in, and it's a Guantanamo Bay soldier mannequin that he snuck in and put up as a protest against the Guantanamo base stuff. Do, do you see what this guy's about in terms of his artwork and his demonstrations and his protests. He doesn't say things with his words. He says them with some of his art and his actions. So we'll hit the lights, and um, here's your big idea. Okay? Jesus, in this text of Scripture, is the prophet, the final prophet who speaks on behalf of God. Jesus is the priest, and his body is the final temple for the once and for all sacrifice. And Jesus is the king of kings for all kingdoms of all worlds and nationalities and ethnicities, but he is the final king of the Jews, which is the final king 
for all. Therefore, Jesus is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. And these actions that are in our four stories that I read are, are saying all of these interwoven. That's why it's so dense. And I thought for a moment, I was like, okay, maybe what we'll do is we'll take the text and I'll show you how he's prophet and then how he's priest and then how he is king. But it, it is, again, so densely interwoven in each of these stories that I just want to give you that one big idea and then let's work through the stories again. And that's the plan. And what I want you to do is I want you to notice that what Jesus is doing in these stories is calculated. It is prophetic. It is similar to what this Binksy artist is doing, but is to declare this message. I am Israel's final priest, Israel's final prophet, I am Israel's final king, and I am going to be the prophet, priest, and king for the world. And he is doing that not so much with his words, but with his actions. All of them are like politically, religiously driven actions. And that's the only way to understand them. So here's a good, like before we, we dive in. If some of you have ever thought or been tempted to think, Jesus, like, it's nice to see he's kind of human. Like he gets all upset and curses at a tree. <laughs> or he, he, um, he gets upset and throws over tables and he's, he's just in a fit of rage. Like, I can relate with that. I, I struggle with that too. No, no, that is not what's happening. That is not getting to know Jesus. That is not what he's like. Jesus is 30-something, 33, 32, when this is happening. Has he been to the temple before? Do we know if he's been to the temple before? We know that he has been at the temple since he was a little kid. Since he's like 12 years old. Do you think he's maybe seen the money changers before? Do you think he's ever seen the selling and trading of, of money in the temple before? And the answer again is, yeah. This is not some sort of like, Jesus approaches the temple and is like, oh my, what's going on? I'm angry now. Ah, ah. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's not flipping out out of something that he didn't know. He is calculated in every move. And you know this because of the story with the donkey. Do you ever wonder with that story of the donkey, that weird interchange where Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to go ahead and I want you to go get this donkey and, and this colt, which is, you know, a, a, baby, a baby horse, a little pony, we would say. I want you to get the donkey and the pony. And he says, you're going to go and you're going to get it. And then if people are going to ask, um, why are you stealing my car? You know, like, why are you stealing my donkey? You're just supposed to say, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and then that's going to work? And then you read the story and it's like, it did. So what's going on there? It's planned. Chapter 21 is a turn. It is a major turning point in the gospel of Matthew. Prior to chapter 21, Jesus is secretive. He's quiet. He's not trying to make a lot of noise. 
He's not trying to let people know that he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Not yet. So when people find that out, have you remembered as we've read the story, if you've ever read about Jesus before, people find out, you're, you're the son of God. And they say stuff like that. And he's like, shh, don't tell people. Chapter 21, oh, it's all out. He's telling people, and he is doing it in an emphatic, in-your-face, here-it-is kind of way. With his actions, with his words. So let's work through the stories again, and hopefully this will help you get some handles around what's happening in these stories. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And throughout this whole message, you should be thinking, is he my prophet? Is he my priest? Is he my king? When I read about these things, am I in awe of him? Do I adore him? Do I love him? Do I want to worship him more? Do I want to obey him more? Let all of that just flow out naturally as we just work through today is you getting to know Jesus. We're not going to get a lot of tips for how you should fix your marriage, how you should parent your kids, how to take care of your money. Today is going to be Jesus. And I want you to get to know him, and I think as you get to know him, It'll help. It'll help a lot. So verse 25 or 29 of chapter 20. And they went out of Jericho and a great crowd followed him because it's the holiday time and they're all going like it's the 4th of July. It's Passover week. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. These are beggars. This is you and I going down downtown Chicago and you see those guys that are always there with their buckets. That's what you should be thinking. People that nobody care about people that you always look by, people that we don't really think is high in society, they're by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out and they said, Lord, have mercy on us. And then they say this, son of David. Son of David is King David. This is a reference to Jesus. He's the king. He is the son of David. And in son of does not just mean that he is biologically in his family line, Although technically Jesus is, son of is like, you are the embodiment of all that David was and more. He is the ultimate David. David's, by the way, the greatest king. So pick your favorite president of the United States and be like, he was the greatest. You know, mine's Abraham Lincoln because he's gorgeous, you know. And so say like, Abraham Lincoln, I am a son of Abraham Lincoln because I embody all of his height and his character attributes and I never lie. You know, like that's what we mean by son of, even though you're not biologically, you can be son of something by being both biological and by being the representation of all that that person was. And the crowds, when they hear these beggars on the side of the road, they rebuke them and say, be quiet. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So then Jesus stops, and he called them, and he said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, typically, when you see a beggar on the side of the road, what are they asking for? Like, just help me with the day. Give me some food. Give me some, some money. I just want something right now. And could you imagine being in downtown Chicago or here on the streets of Palatine meeting somebody that's homeless and be like, hey, how can I help you? That's what Jesus is doing. And then the person responds, could you meet my deepest longings and needs 
and the biggest problems of my life right now? You see, they didn't just ask for some money or a little food or a little help for the day. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Jesus, here's, here's what we love about Jesus. So far, this is not the controversial part. This is like, Jesus is awesome. In pity, he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Now, Here's one of the points. We've already seen that Jesus is the son of David and he's being spoken as of son of David, not by the crowds yet, but by the poor beggars on the side of the road that everybody's saying, shh. And that's so Matthew. It's so the gospels. It's so the whole story of Jesus wrapped up in a nutshell. Everybody that the world overlooks, they're the ones that get it and the people that Jesus loves and shows pity. And then these people follow him. Like they're now a part of the crew. Just imagine in the next scene, right, when we transition to the next story, the crew of people that Jesus has as he's riding into the city to show that he's the king. He doesn't have an army. He's got blind beggars that just got their sight. He's got a motley crew of dudes that were fishermen and are uneducated, Acts chapter 4 says. Like, if you're going to go make a demonstration of what kind of king you are, you get the biggest, the strongest, the armor, the soldiers, the war horses, and you're ready to ride in and march and say, I'm the king. This is bold. This is like that picture of like, oh, he's got flowers in his hands. So Jesus is the king, but a different kind of king. And in just the blind healing of the blind story. He is the prophet. And the reason I say that is because the prophets of the Old Testament did signs and wonders and healings and miracles. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, all of the former prophets of the Old Testament did things even that Jesus did in his life. None of them healed a blind man. Nobody did this. He is the prophet. And in fact, Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, he'll give sight to the blind and he'll lift up the oppressed and he'll help the poor and the needy. Jesus is fulfilling those words of Isaiah here. And so there they come. His crew, his army of soldiers who are not much of soldiers. They drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage. So We have another picture for you, and it's a picture of the scene right here, chapter 21, verse 1, and it's a picture of the city. So when they get there, they're at a spot, and um, you can see the Dome of the Rock, which is where the temple would have been, and it's the, the gold middle dome right in the middle of the picture. There's trees right in front of this picture, but then after those trees, it is a steep decline and then a steep incline. And that's the Kidron Valley that's right in between those two mounts. And so here's the image you're supposed to see, is that they came near to Jerusalem, and that dome is, um, is not quite the picture you should see. It, this is a giant temple that's going to uh, really be, be like the, the landscape or the, the view that you would see. It's like, whoa, this temple is huge. Remember what we read in John chapter 2 previously when Paul came up and read? This took us how many years to build? 46 years to build? It's because it's, it's, it's magnificent. It was, it was gorgeous. And, and so you got to just remember, this, this temple is just 
one of those things like when you're coming to Chicago and you see the skyline and you're like, whoa, that's big. There's the Willis Tower. There's the John Hancock. Like that's, that's what you'd see. And so you got to know that this is like, again, or go, go to the July 4th image. You're coming in and it's like you're going to go right to the center of that iconic spot. This is like going to the White House or the Capitol building steps as he's coming in. And then he says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you, find a donkey that's tied, and then the colt, the pony that's with her, untie them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And so it took place, and it happened just as Jesus said. And it said all of this took place in verse 4 and 5 to fulfill the prophet of Zechariah chapter 9. And Matt earlier read this as our assurance of pardon, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. But that's just a part of the translation. He's bringing salvation. So, so this whole thing is a demonstration of the humility of the king, the one true king who's fulfilling the long-awaited promise that there would be a king that comes and rescues God's people. And we see it being fulfilled here And so, this is another great picture of Jesus is the king. He's the king. Verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is like going to a wedding, and they line the aisle with like that, white runner, you know, that's going to be, and then you throw down the flowers from the flower girl. You get what I mean? That sort of tradition is what's happening here when they take their jackets. So everybody has like one cloak or jacket. And uh, imagine living here and it being cold in Chicago and you've got one coat. Could could you imagine that? I think so. We've got fresh evidences outside as we look and say, yeah, I would not really want to give up my one coat and throw it in the mud because I kind of need that. And, uh, but if there was something of such value that was better than just your material possessions and you were in the presence of glory, uh, you might do something that doesn't make sense. And these people are in the presence of the king and they get it. And, well, sort of. They think he's the king, but they don't realize he's going to be the king by dying. But they get that he's the king. So they put down their cloaks in the muddy ground as if it's like, oh, he, he should not be able to, to be in the mud. We're, we're going to cover that up with palm branches. This you can find in other ancient history books and, and lessons that this would have been a demonstration of royalty. It, it's just oozing with royalty in this story. And so that's what that's going on. And then the crowds started shouting. And there's what I said earlier about Hosanna to the son of David. And we mentioned what son of David was. But Hosanna, what's that? Um, and so if you've ever been guilty of this, I know, I know have, I have. We sang earlier in the service, hallelujah. Praise the one who set us free. What, what's hallelujah? Well, it's not an English word. So if you're wondering, like, maybe I need to work on my vocab and do some vocab cards or something. It's, it's not that. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word with English letters instead of Hebrew letters. And it, it means praise Yah, Hallelujah. 
And so Yah is Yahweh, or praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah is. So when we're singing that song, and any of you are wondering, like, what does hallelujah mean? Uh, now you know. It means praise the Lord. Praise the God of Israel. He has set us free. That's what we were singing earlier. So if you're singing uh, one of those other songs that sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, you're singing the same thing. It's, it's a Greek word with English letters, and it means save us. And it has a sense of immediacy. It's save us now. And that's the word. I, I don't know why they don't translate those words in the Bible. Like, I'm not a part of translation committees, so I don't know. But like, you'd think it would just say, and then they shouted, save us. That would have been helpful. But instead, it's Hosanna, which isn't an English word at all. So now, hopefully, you know what they're doing. They're saying, save us, King David, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, one thing that I did study is that Hosanna means save us, but you see here at the last part, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna became a common word for like praise. And even though um, it meant save us, it was to give praise or adoration to someone. So you'd find them in prayers and in songs and things like that. And he entered Jerusalem after they're doing all this shouting and they were stirred. Do you see that in verse 10? When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. If you're stirred up in your sleep, is that good or bad? Do you want to have stirring in your sleep? No, the answer is no, you don't. You want to be calm and, and peaceful. The city being stirred up means like, whoa, this caused like some ruffling of feathers. He, he made a scene here. And this is unlike Jesus. This is that point I made earlier. Prior to these stories, Jesus is not ruffling feathers in this kind of way, loud and just kind of out there. And he did. The whole city is stirred up because of this entrance. Because there's already a king on the throne. There's an emperor of Rome, and then Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews. There's two other guys that are in the shadows of this story, and you're supposed to compare and contrast the real king Jesus from these other would-be kings. And so then the people say, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is part of why in this message, I'm telling you, you see that he is the prophet. You see that he is the priest. And he is the king. In this story, it is all about him being the Messiah King that everybody's been waiting for. And they're laying out the royal carpet for him to come into the city. And they're shouting, save us. You're going to be our deliverer. You're going to be the king. And then they call him the prophet. You need to realize that the default way that people thought about Jesus, more often than not in the Gospels, is prophet. Because he was one. And in fact, it's a very helpful pointer because Jesus, I think, with his actions here and then the next story, the actions in the temple are prophetic. He is acting like a prophet. And a lot of you don't read the prophets uh, just because they're long and they're confusing and they're hard and it takes a lot of work and we're lazy. I mean, if there's a little jab, there it is, you know, we're lazy. Like, we should read the prophets. You will better understand these dense stories if you read your prophets. Say, for example, prophets did not just preach and they did not just predict the future. These are all like, don't think about prophets that way. Or only in that small little category. 
When Jesus is called a prophet, he is representing God, speaking on behalf of him, and he does both words and actions that demonstrate his message. Um, A good way to think about this is in Isaiah chapter 20. Uh, Isaiah is called not to preach judgment, but to walk around the city naked for three years. You can read it. I didn't make that up. There's some fun stuff in there, you know? So, So read it. Isaiah chapter 20. For three years, Isaiah's prophetic pronouncement of judgment to Israel was him walking around naked. He didn't go preach as much as he did just demonstrate with his nude body uh, what he was trying to say. And God told him to do it. That's Isaiah chapter 20. Or there's Ezekiel, who was told to take a sword and uh, give himself a haircut with a sword. Is, is that easy or hard to do? How, how's your hair going to look after you take a giant sword and you cut your hair? Like, it's going to be nasty. And, and then he throws his hair up, and then he chops it, and he says, this is going to be Israel in a few weeks, months, because judgment's coming from Babylon. Do you see, the prophets are more than just predicting things with, um, hey, uh, tomorrow this is going to happen to you. Don't think of prophecy as just limited to God gives them some special word or insight about something that you wouldn't have known. The prophets are reading the times, blessed by the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're like these dramatic preachers. That's what Jesus is about to do in the very next story. He is going to be like Jeremiah or like Isaiah or Ezekiel and prophetically do something that preaches way louder than any words he could ever say. So in verse 12, it says, He entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. For this little section right here, I, just, I really want you to try and consider this idea. And and I don't think you're going to get this from many Bible studies or pastors or preachers. Um, I think that what Jesus is doing here is being a prophet. And I think he is telling them, and this is my just, I'm flying over a lot of dense material to give you the the punchline right here. He's saying, the temple's coming down. That's what he's doing. It's a symbolic action to show the same way Isaiah or Ezekiel or the other prophets, the temple is about to come down. This is the end of the temple. It's going to be destroyed. And the reason I think that, if if I were to give you one of many different hints as to why, is when Matt came up here, he read our first scripture reading. It's in your bulletin. It's from Jeremiah. Okay? And if you read Jeremiah 7, you find that in Jeremiah chapter 7, he Jeremiah speaks and he says, the temple, the temple, the temple. And he says, don't, don't say that anymore. Don't say that you're in the temple or you have the temple because the temple is going to be destroyed. And then he says, here's why. Because of your oppression of the weak and the poor. That's what Matt read for us. You can go back and read it. But the, they're acting like, we've got the temple. We've got the temple. It's like, again, to use... The modern illustration, we've got the, the White House, the White House, the White House. And then imagine somebody on the 4th of July being like, the White House is about to get blown up. It's, it's going to be demolished. 
and one stone will not be left on top of another. And by the way, I'm the president. Like, that's a lot, right? He is prophetically saying that's about to happen because of judgment. Now, here's the question, why? Why is there judgment, and why is he flipping over the tables? A, I don't think he's just in a fit of rage. I do think he's upset. I do think this is the wrath of God being displayed by by Jesus. I think he's displeased. But I think this is a symbol of the whole system. The chief priests, the scribes, the religious rulers and leaders. It's a corrupt system that's running the, the, the temple. And you can know that by the little details you get just from this little paragraph. So here's a picture of the temple um, to help us picture it in our minds because this will help us see that the temple is big, um, but also where the money changers are are in the big court area. So the middle part would have been where you've got like the Holy of Holies place and it's a cube and that's where only the high priest goes. But everybody else can be in the big court area. And this is, this is huge, by the way. And so that's the part where you've got all of these uh, money changers and the tables and all of the animals and things. Um, it's not a problem that there's money changers. It's not a problem that there's uh, animals because these people are traveling from all over the place for the high holidays. Uh, Jesus himself is traveling up for the Passover. He, he's coming from Galilee and it's several days journey. And if you're going to give an unblemished animal, you're not going to bring one from back home because it's going to get blemished on your way. So you got to get one when you get to Jerusalem. So in one sense, it's not like that the fact that there's this commerce of selling and changing money, like they're coming from another state, they're coming from another country. And have you ever like gone into an airport and then you got to like change over money because you're in a new place? That's what's going on here. The problem is of more than likely, even though it doesn't say, they're probably charging too much. Go figure, you know. Uh, they're doing it in the very area where worship's supposed to happen instead of outside of it. And then the whole people that are doing it are a bunch of corrupt leaders that the whole system is rigged and it's, it's, it's all messed up. And so Jesus is saying, you're oppressing the poor. So in fact, look at the way Matthew, John didn't include this detail. Look at the detail, which table, look down at your text. Which table does he say that he flipped over for the animals? Those who sold what animal? Someone say it. The pigeons. All right, quiz time. Leviticus 1 to 7. We did this recently. What's the significance of the pigeons? Who who offers the pigeons? The poor. The The poorest of the poor. You don't have a goat that you can afford. You don't have a lamb. You don't have a bull or an oxen. You don't have the money for it, and you don't have that kind of capital at your home. So there's no chance you're going to be able to offer those things. Well, God is for all people of all kinds of economic ups and downs. And so he wants all to come and worship him. All nationalities, all faiths, God is inclusive in that way. And so he, he makes a provision for the poor by saying, you, you can in place do a pigeon. So I think Matthew is trying to poke here the pigeon table. Because it's the same thing going on in Jeremiah chapter 7. You are oppressing the poor. So, so, so the whole system's rigged of people that are trying to get rich off of the backs of the poor. And Jesus is showing you because of your failure to really follow God with your heart and love God and love people, 
That's Jesus' main message. Love God and love people. You've missed it. And this temple is coming down because you have left God. It's crashing. And so that's what I think he's doing. And then in verse 14, it says, the blind and the lame come to him in the temple and he heals them. Which is that contrast of what are they doing? Exploiting the weak and the poor. And what's Jesus doing? He's helping and healing the weak and the poor. And in fact, one other kind of little tidbit that I thought was great is that David, in a story about him riding in on a donkey, by the way, he did that and Solomon did too. This is all like the density of this text. But there's also a story of David turning away the blind from the temple. Oh, but this greater than David, king? He's, he's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest who will be the priest who intercedes on behalf of the sins of all people and he won't turn anyone away. And the scribes and the priests and the chief priests and all them, they see the, the wow, that's the word wonderful, whoa, all the things that he is doing and then they hear children crying out in the temple, this is verse 15, Hosanna to the son of David. And so they were upset, they were angry, and they should be. And they said to him, do you hear what these uh, children are saying? And Jesus says, yep, I, I do. I'm hearing it loud and clear. And so he, he's uh, a bit sarcastic probably here with this phrase. Have you ever read this before? And it's like one of the most well-known, common pieces of poetry in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 8. It's like, have you ever read your Bible before, you who actually sit down and your full-time job is to make copies of the Bible? Have you ever read it before? That's, that's what he's saying. And he, he does this a lot. It's, it's classic Jesus. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And then he left them. And he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And so let's pause there, right there. Some people think that he was trying to end just the like... Uh, the trades that were going on in the temple. There, there's nothing in the text that says that that ceased from this point on. Like the next day, it probably happened just all over again. So Jesus makes a big mess at 4th of July, and then the, the police, they start coming, and they're like, whoa, what's going on here? And they're kind of upset, like this isn't good. But then he leaves. And then things go on your merry way, and then you end your 4th of July celebration, and then things happen as if nothing had ever happened. That's how you need to picture what's going on with Jesus on this scene. Oh, Jesus is definitely a marked man. Like if you're the Secret Service in Washington, D.C., and somebody gets up and says, I'm the new president of the United States. I mean, there's probably laughs and snickers or whatever, but like you're probably watching that guy, you know? Like especially if you just said, and the White House is going to be bombed. You're like, well, we're really watching that guy. That's, that's what's happening with Jesus. And in fact, I would say this is the first step as to why Jesus died. Because it's this day, if you know, like the seven days before Jesus, you know, the Passover and, and the week before. We, we call this Palm Sunday in our church calendar. He, he died because of his own actions. He died because he was making calculated moves and decisions to his death. This is why he predicted his death. And this is why he told his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. It wasn't like Jesus died because he's just going along his way. And they're kind of like, oh, oops. And then they killed him. Ah, oh. Think of the courage. Think of how much more appreciative you could be of the death of Jesus if you realize that he not only knew it, but he helped make it happen. This is what this story is showing us. He's a marked man because of his own actions. He knows this is going to stir them up. 
And then this brings us to our last story. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And so this is where a lot of people might read this and be like, oh man, he might be a little hangry, right? Like he's got that hunger and he needs some food real quick. And if he could just eat something, then he wouldn't be so upset. He was so upset last time. That's not the way to read this. He is hungry. He is going out to a tree and he sees a fig tree by the wayside and it has leaves on it, which means that it's supposed to be growing. And if you see a tree that's got leaves, then you think it's got life. And if there's an apple tree and it's got leaves and it's not the dead of winter, you're thinking, well, I'm going to find some apples. And here's the fig tree and there's, there's no figs. There's just leaves. And so he says, may fruit never come from you again. And the fig tree withered. It died right in their midst. What's going on? Why is this not hangry Jesus? <laughs> uh, because if, if we did read the prophets, like Micah or like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all these prophets, you'll find again and again the nation of Israel is talked about as bearing fruit from fig trees. And when the prophets are condemning them, they're saying, you're like a fruit without any tree. And so he is demonstrating by his actions the same thing that he demonstrated by his actions in the last scene. He turned over the table and he is saying by those actions, the temple, it's coming down. And Israel, you're withering. Your capital city, it is, it is going to wither in our eyes. And why do I think that's what he's doing? Because of the very next few verses. The verses that are very easy for us. This is what we do, and this is what I want you not to do, okay? Guys, listen up. We dialed in. On these verses, it's very easy where we as Christians be like, yeah, I'm not sure how to apply this stuff to my life. Oh, here's some good stuff. If I pray, I can do anything I want, move mountains. Oh, there we go. That's good application for me. Watch. When the disciples saw this, they marveled and said, wow, how did that fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say, and then here's the key phrase, this mountain, uh, this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. What's the mountain that they're at? What, what mountain are they at? We, I showed you the picture. It's, it's not that big. It's not like Mount Everest or something, but it's, it's called the Mount Zion, right? It's Jerusalem. The mountain that the temple is on. You can take that mountain with all of its corruption and all of its injustice and you can say, God, I want you to throw that into the sea. I want you to turn that over on its head. I want you to come and bring the righteous justice that needs to happen because this is sickening. You could pray that prayer and that mountain will be thrown into the sea. Something even greater than just seeing a fig tree wither. Something big is about to come down. And it's going to come down because people like you, disciples, we're going to pray for this. And we're going to pray for God to act. And Jesus is the prophet. So, did it happen? Did the temple get blown up? Did the mountain get thrown into the water? Did Jesus come riding in on a donkey and people hail him as king and lay out the red carpet for him and say, save us. Did he do it? Yeah, but not, not like anyone was thinking. 
Here's the most heartfelt moment of my meditation of this text, and we'll close with this. When I was thinking about that artist, that Binksy guy, right? He goes around and he's doing these graffiti art and, you know, it's kind of fun, provocative. Again, depending on where you're at on politics, you might love it or you might hate it, but. But then I was thinking, what is he really doing though? Like how is he actually changing anything? Like maybe he's making awareness, he's making a statement, you know? Like it's like the kids or adults that blast out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and be like, ah! But like, what did you really do? Like, did you really help? Like, you're getting the word out, you're saying a message. Jesus does not just pronounce judgment on the temple and all of its corruption. He's pronouncing judgment that he's going to bear himself. Jesus is the last and final prophet, and he's the only prophet that pronounces a judgment on the temple, and that temple is his body. Because when the temple is collapsed in AD 70, that's later, but the disciples realize, oh, the reason the temple is going to collapse is because the ultimate temple is Jesus, because he's the ultimate priest. So when he's pronouncing judgment on Israel, he is Israel. To be the prophet is to be the representative of the people. To be the priest is to be the one who goes and intercedes on behalf of the people. To be the king is to be the one who makes all of the decisions and rulings on behalf of the people. So because he is all three of those things, if he's pronouncing judgment on Israel, he's pronouncing judgment on himself. Because he is a Jew. And even though he did not corroborate in all of their injustice and oppression, he took on the judgment and the penalty when, a few days later, as we keep reading, he dies on a cross. And then he is buried. And three days later, he rises again from the dead. And then he explains to the disciples all that this stuff meant. And then they get it. Like, oh, that's what that was about in the temple. That's what John 2 says. That's why we read John 2. When you read the cleansing in John 2, it's like he just goes straight to that point. I'm talking about my body. That's what the temple thing was about. Because I'm the ultimate priest and I'm the last temple. And there is no salvation. There is no kingdom. There is nothing else except through me. So is he your prophet? Is he your priest? And is he your king? If he is, you need to know that by getting to know Jesus, you need to know he's going to be like this confrontational, prophetic. He's going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to convict you the same way he does those oppressive rulers in the temple. And he's going to go in and he's going to crush your idols and he's going to take away the very things that you love and cherish and you're going to feel like he hates you and he's angry with you and you're not going to realize that he's saving you. That's the kind of prophet, priest and king he is. So is he yours? I mean, we like the first story where it says, I like it when he heals me and I get good stuff from him. How, how about when he moves into your temple and he turns over your table? What is that? What is that for you? What's the thing that you're doing that when Jesus would come into your life, Embassy Church, I mean, you could do this from every angle and part of life. If he were to come to the United States of America, what's the tables he needs to turn over? If he comes to our church and the Church of America, what are the tables that he needs to turn over? Be like, no, 
this is this got to go. And in its place, resurrect me as prophet, priest, and king. That's what you need to think through. Because if you want him to be your prophet, priest, and king, you need to know this is what he's like. And sometimes you're not going to like it. You're going to be like those chief priests and scribes. You'll be like, I'm indignant. What are you doing? The good news is that he's saving. Hosanna, save. Save us, please. And he did. And even though some of it ruffles our feathers, he's saving. So praise God that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ and that we have hope because of him. We thank you, God, for how he is fulfilling so many things in just these few stories that we read about. There's just so much. We thank you, God, for your word, its depths, its riches. We're thankful for Jesus. Oh, God, we, we thank you right now. I pray that as a church, we would be thankful that our God looks at oppression of the poor and can't stand it. This is good. This is righteous. I am thankful that I have a God who sees the injustice in the world and doesn't sweep it under the rug. Thank you. Thank you that Jesus embodies that. We thank you, God, that Jesus is not just a prophetic judge that yells and screams at people or something and turns over tables. But he is meek and mild. He cares for the weak. He rides in on a donkey. He has pity. God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful today that he wants to stop and sit down and get low and say right to us in our face, what do you want? What can I do for you? How can I help you? We're thankful that this is the kind of Jesus we have. This is the kind of God, the kind of king, the ruler. We're thankful, God, that in 2020, there is no person that will be elected as president of the United States that will be as good as Jesus. And that we don't have to put our hope in the election and the politics. God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that there is a king above all the kings. And we're thankful, God, that all of the prophets from before, there's not need for another one. We've got the last and final word of God. It's complete. It's done. It's finished. We have everything we need right here just by getting to know Jesus and who he is and what he's done and following him. That's all we need. So I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be like him. In Jesus' name, amen.